Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Helen Lackner. Helen has worked in Yemen since the 1970s and lived there for 15 years. Her acute and accessible analysis of Yemen's economic, political, and social issues are crucial to an understanding of a complex, troubled, and troubling story. Helen is a regular Digest contributor to our newsletter and podcasts, and the author of Yemen in Crisis, The Road to War, published by Verso. It's a seminal study of the current war and what lies behind it. And a new edition with additional material is coming out shortly. I recommend it highly. And watch out for another new study, Yemen, Poverty and Conflict, published by Routledge, and coming out on 15th of July. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for asking me, and I'm glad to be here. Helen, before we get on to Yemen, I wanted your thoughts on the killing of the American-Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. Yes, I think it's been a real shock hearing about this. I mean, she was a very fantastic person who was widely respected. And it's particularly shocking in so far as it certainly looks like a straightforward murder. And even more so that the likelihood is that um, there will not be a sufficiently strong reaction to make any change to Israeli policies who appear to continue to want to suppress any voices that might possibly indicate that what they're doing is not acceptable. So I think it's a really sad event and uh, one which should produce a much stronger reaction from the international community in general and certainly from the U.S. government, given that she was a U.S. citizen, then um, then is likely to happen. But maybe I'll be proved wrong. And meanwhile, I do feel that it's important to present one's condolences to her family and, of course, to Al Jazeera. Indeed, it is, and and I and I share that thought in passing on our condolences to her family and to her colleagues at Al Jazeera. Yemen, the ceasefire was announced. 1st of April, for two months. We're now more than halfway through it. How is it holding up, Helen? Well, I think it's doing reasonably well. I mean, it's still on. You know, there have been a number of breaches, particularly there's been some fighting on the ground uh, around Marib and a couple of other places. But it's only been fighting on the ground. There have been no airstrikes. There have been no Houthi missiles or drones or anything attacking Saudi or the Emirates. Uh, There have been some surveillance drones traveling around, but nothing much else. The positive elements of it, which are the allowing of the fuel ships to come into Hodeida, that does appear to be running pretty efficiently. What hasn't operated has been the opening of the Sana'a airport, which the internationally recognized government has managed to, as far as I can understand, sabotage by insisting on problems to do with passports. Uh, That could be a long story, which one won't go into, but obviously they tend to not recognize the passports that have been issued in Sana'a for some time. So I think, you know, I'd say it's been going, maybe you could say, as well as expected. You know, whether it will be extended is something I don't feel able to make any statement about, really. I hope it will. Uh, I'm sure many, many Yemenis hope it will, but I couldn't. I can't say that I have any information to, to suggest things either way. The um, departure of the international recognized government putative leader, 
President Hadi and the initiation of the Presidential Leadership Council. Has that had much impact on the lives of ordinary Yemenis? Is that making a difference right now? Not yet, I think. Um, I think it's also important to remember that this is, has all happened during Ramadan. And basically the main, the main difference, that the main thing that's happened for Yemenis in the last month has been an expected continued in price rises. The creation of the PLC has uh, reduced the differential in the exchange rate of the real and the, to the dollar and to the Saudi real in in Aden, which means uh, in the areas under its control, which means that the um, you know the differential is not quite as outrageous as it was. I mean, it was some between you know six hundred reals to the dollar in some controlled areas and up to fifteen sixteen hundred to the dollar in Aden and similar areas. Uh, it's now gone down to about 900 in Aden. So that's made some difference, certainly for people who uh, who get dollars. But generally, the main event, I think, that's happened in the last few months and weeks has been the continuation in the, of the price increases, which is partly due to Ramadan, which is, of course, now partly due to the situation in Ukraine. Yemen gets about 40% of its wheat uh, from Ukraine and Russia. And, you know, one thing that I noticed recently, which I was looking at, is the differential of prices in reals between Sana and the uh, IRG-controlled areas. And basically, almost everything is significantly more expensive in the Aden-controlled areas. So, you know, that, that makes a very big difference, particularly to those people who don't have any access to foreign exchange. Um, so I really don't think that, you know, up to now, this has made a big difference. I mean, they claim to now be planning to improve living conditions in Aden, but then people have been claiming to improve living conditions in Aden for the past five or six years. I think it will take some time to see if that really makes any difference. I think it's worth pointing out, you know, that this Presidential Leadership Council is yet again another Presidential Leadership Council of which the, the Yemen has a history and it's not been a history of roaring successes. And this particular one, you know, is composed of people who under normal conditions would be much happier shooting each other than sitting together talking. Mm. But, but no tears shed for the departure of Hadi. Well... I mean, I think everybody's relieved that he's gone. I mean, he was, you know, he, he was an obstruction to any any change and any development. So in a sense, you know, his departure does open certain doors. But, you know, apart, and I don't think he's very greatly regretted anywhere. Um, but really, at this point, this council hasn't really demonstrated, it's, uh, certainly it hasn't demonstrated any particular governance capacity that would affect the living conditions of the population. What does make a difference is, you know, the 300, uh, whatever, the 3 billion, I forget how many billion dollars the Saudis and the Emiratis have proposed to put into the central bank. Yeah, yeah. I believe it's 1 billion apiece uh, with the Saudis kicking in another billion for humanitarian aid. And I don't know if they've done it yet. So, 
you know, if if and when they do, that will facilitate imports, which could bring down the prices of some basic commodities or at least compensate for the price increases that would otherwise be taking place. And as you say, pressures because of the uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, what about the COVID situation? How is that looking? I have very little information about the COVID situation. I mean, you know, in the semi-controlled area, there is no information. They basically suppress all information. And therefore, you know, and people, are get, when they, if they admit to having anything remotely looking like COVID, they get ill-treated and, and locked up. And generally, you know, it's not a good idea. So, and on the Aiden side, I'm afraid I haven't looked at the recent figures but, you know, there, there is, I think there is a bit more vaccination going on than there was. Uh, amusingly, I was speaking to somebody a few days ago who had to travel and who had to get a PCR test to travel. So I expressed surprise that she could get a PCR test. And she explained to me that they actually didn't put the, you know, the, the whatever it's called, the, the cotton in her nose or in her throat. They just sort of waved it in front of her and gave her the, gave her the certificate. So I think uh, I wouldn't put much confidence in the quality of PCR tests at Aden Airport <laughs> mm -hmm. if I was a health inspector in any country. Okay. But of course, okay. she had to pay for it um, and she got her certificate. Right. Okay. Um Hans Grunberg, the UN Special Envoy, has proven a, a welcome change from his predecessors. I'm just wondering, in your estimation, uh, what he's getting right? What, he, what is he doing that his predecessors didn't do? I, I mean, I'm not familiar with his, the details of his strategy, so I can't really give any very specific answer to that. But I think the number of things he's doing, one is he's being very principled and he's not taking a sort of transactional commercial um attitude to the to the various parties involved and i think that means he is getting much more respect the other thing he's done and he started doing and he's continuing to do as far as i know is to consult and discuss with every single party and i don't mean political party i mean involved groups or organization involved in the struggles. So he started this, you know, in March and meeting different groups and trying to get them to specify what their demands were, what their baselines were, what were the minimum and maximalist sort of positions in order to be able to establish the basis on which to prepare some negotiations. And he's also very much addressed and talked directly and visited parts of the country, which no pre previous um, special envoy did. And of course, you know, his big success is that he has achieved the, the two months truce. And that is the first one in, since 2016. So that's a really, you know, really significant first step. I mean, it is a first step. It's not, uh, you know, he, we're not there yet. And as we just said, the truce is you know, not working 100%. So really, it will all depend on the willingness of the different warring parties to develop a road away from the war, I would say. And he's also looking and trying to address issues like the economic issues. So he, he's broadening in terms of political um, interlocutors, but also in terms of... Um, you know, activities and focus of, of 
of the intervention, or sorry, not of the intervention, but of of where he could affect or bring about a discussion as a mediator, which is what he could be or what he is. What about uh, the pledging for humanitarian assistance? I mean, how is that coming on and, and has that ceasefire encouraged pledging nations to deliver on their commitments? Well, pledging it takes place, you know, at the conference, which was in, was it 16th of March? And as you may remember, 1.3 billion was pledged by comparison with the requested amount, which was 4.3 million, I think, billion, sorry, billion, I'm getting confused between millions and billions. And um, as far as I know, there have not been additional pledges since then, except possibly the 300 million that the Saudis pledged or, or promised at the time of the um, the changeover of, of from Hadi to the presidential council. I have not seen any detailed records of additional pledging. However, um, what has been paid up, within the humanitarian response plan i what ha what what actually has materialized by now i by yesterday the 11th of may was 0 0.9 billion so that's a lot less than the pledges and of that more than half came from the us 15% came from the saudis so you've had a very limited input i mean since we're now in the fifth month of the year you know, you've got a very serious shortfall still on, on A, on the pledges and B, on what is needed. And, and the situation of the Yemeni people remains uh, very, very uh, desperate. Yeah, I mean, what has, you know, the difference that has happened thanks to the events of the last month is that you now don't, you know, Yemenis, don't, most Yemenis don't have to worry about actual fighting on most fronts. Apart from that, you know, it hasn't made that much difference to their living conditions because the prices keep going up and the, all the numerous problems of checkpoints and hassles and unpleasantness from the different, you know, war fa warring factions uh, I think have remained pretty much unchanged. So, that for as far as ordinary Yemenis are concerned, the, you know there isn't very much difference now, other than a much big reduction in fighting and therefore in death of of fighting people. Hmm. I wanted to ask you, Helen, about that rusting oil storage tanker in the Red Sea, the FSO Safar. 1.1 million barrels of oil sitting in the hold, sitting there since the start of the war in 2015. Environmental catastrophe potentially looming, but perhaps some good news on that front? Yeah, the Safir is the one area on which there is some significant change and developments, you know, and there are developments at the moment. So, I mean, the, the Safir... In the last few couple of months, a memorandum of understanding was signed between the UN and the Houthis, which agreed that an, an alternative storage ship would be brought alongside the Safir and the oil would be transferred to this and the Safir itself, once emptied, would be taken away and uh, basically scrapped. That's the only thing it's fit for and that this would be financed by external financiers. So in other words, the Houthis, after this operation, would be left with the oil 
and with a ship in situ. And so to do this, the UN needed to raise funds. And on 11th of May, a Beijing conference was held to fund this operation. They were seeking $80 million. Um, they got as pledges $33 million with the additional money they already have. They now have $40 million, which should go half, pay halfway to, to bringing an alternative ship and to transferring the oil. The total cost of the entire operation is estimated at $144 million. And I think that includes the long-term uh, long presence of a new ship. The important thing about the SAFIR is that it has been at risk and continues to be at risk as long as it's there of sinking, leaking or exploding, which would cause a, an environmental problem in the Red Sea which would be four times the equivalent to that of the Exxon Valdez. It would be an absolutely massive disaster. How widespread would depend on the season and the winds and a number of complex factors. What is very interesting is that at this pledging conference, all the states who pledged were Western states. There was not one cent pledged. Sorry, I apologize. Uh, there was one Gulf state that did pledge, that was Qatar. Uh, all the other GCC states pledged nothing. And in particular, the Saudis. I mean, if the wind goes in the wrong direction and the thing explodes and the oil leaks, you know, they will suffer. Their desalination plants would suffer. All kinds of things could suffer on the Red Sea, on their Red Sea coast. So it is now looking as if there is a solution because it has been, you know, a main issue now for many years. And hopefully it will, something will happen, but it will still be many months before the oil is transferred. And, you know, this still leaves an opportunity for major disaster. I mean, if anything happens in the next month or next two months, you know, this will make this whole plan obsolete. It will be, have to be replaced by a major, major cleanup operation. It is, as you point out, Quite extraordinary that the Saudis have not uh, put in some money to this because, as you say, they are at risk as well. Uh, perhaps they will change their minds when they they give it some some more thought. Um, I wanted to also raise a point that you've made before uh, in your Arab Digest articles in the newsletter, and that is that the voice of women are missing from the efforts to end the war. Any sign of improvement there? And, and if not, what does it tell us? Well, I think the, you know, as is clear, the presidential leadership council is composed exclusively of men and actually almost exclusively of warlords. So there are no women on it. Um, I think the UN process is now involving women in a more serious manner. And I'm hoping, but I have no evidence to support it, that, you know, Grunberg's approach is to try and get the different groups to include women in their delegations rather than to treat women as a sort of separate entity. But I know that uh, women and women's groups have been consulted individually and as groups. So hopefully, you know, when the next stage of discussions and negotiations uh, 
emerges, maybe soon, you know, women will be present. But I, again, we have to wait and see. If a new government is formed, I mean, up to now we have the same old government, but there is a possibility that the new presidential council will bring a new government. Uh, this would be an opportunity for them to rectify the total absence of women in government. But I don't know that they're planning to do this in the immediate future. And, and why, Helen, is it important that women be involved in these efforts? Well, I think women form 50% of the Yemeni population. So if you're going to have any representation of the people, it seems to be only fair to, for, for women to be uh, part of the discussions. I think the other aspect is that, you know, although there are women who are probably as factionally determined and narrow-minded as men, many women have a much more positive approach, which is more concerned with the welfare of the population in general and the needs and concerns of ordinary people on a daily basis than men who tend to have a more um, narrow-minded and maybe militaristic approach and power-hungry approach, I'd say. So I think, you know, getting women involved would be a good idea. Mm. And as you say, that's one of the things that uh, Grunberg has done. Uh, I know his predecessor, Martin Griffiths, was criticized for his failure to engage uh, with women. But I wanted to ask you again about this Presidential Leadership Council. Are the Saudis and the Emiratis on the same page with what they want to see happen in Yemen going forward? Or, or do you see two different agendas two competing sets of outcomes? Well, I think they've agreed about the PLC. I think they got it together and, you know, it has people who are supported both by the Saudis and by the Emiratis. Uh, my feeling is that they both want to get out of this Yemen quagmire, both the Emiratis and the Saudis. I think they've, you know, realized that basically not much positive can come out of it from their point of view. And therefore, they want to get out. So I think up to that extent, they are very much on the same page. I think the Emiratis have been much more skilled. For example, you know, we've said many times and over a long period that they support southern separatism. Well, that's true to some extent, but, the, you know, one of the main groups that they support are Tarek Saleh's forces, who are by no means separatists and who are implanted and present in what used to be the Yemen Arab Republic area. So, you know, they they have a, a, a more ambiguous approach and maybe a more sophisticated approach. So I think in that sense, they may be a bit more, they may have a bit of an advantage. But on the whole, at this point, my perception is that they both want to get out, they both want to get on with other things, and their own uh, differences and rivalries, you know, can very easily shift elsewhere. So they have this common objective, and um, I think the Emiratis are probably in a better position to put pressure on some of the elements of this, you know, of this leadership council maybe than the Saudis. But I think, you know, we still need to see uh, what, if anything, the um, emerges from this council, if they're actually able to do something positive. The last time I did a podcast with you, you, you ended by saying that 
although there had been tentative moves to get a peace dialogue going at the time that was involved in the Omanis, it was one step on a very, very, very long staircase. Is Yemen further up the staircase now, Helen? Yeah, I think it is. Um, not far up, and it's a long staircase. Uh, but I think, you know, that I think the truth is a really big change. The other thing is, I think it's clear that not only do the Saudis and the Emiratis want an end to this or want to get out of this, but I, I think what happened, particularly what happened in Shabwa at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, has proved that the Houthis will not be allowed to take Marib. And therefore, it has proved that we have a stalemate which is unlikely to be broken. And my personal view is that, you know, negotiations start when you have a stalemate which neither side thinks it can break and win. And my feeling is that at the moment we're getting close to that because for the last two years, the, the Houthis, you know, carried on and carried on because they were planning to get Marib. If they now accept that they won't be allowed to do so, which is, I think, what happened, you know, when the Tariq's forces were brought in and the Emiratis really intervened indirectly via Tariq's forces and the Amalika, you have a situation where this stalemate is a, st is a steady stalemate in the sense that it's not going to be broken. So you have a situation where it makes sense for most forces to realize that, you know, discussion, it may be the right time for discussions. I think on the other hand, you know, the Emiratis are in a position to put much more pressure on the southern separatists in general and the STC in particular. And you have this Tariq Saleh's people are probably much keener on finding, you know, a negotiated solution. So I think this is a more positive movement for Grundberg, who also has now achieved something and is is much more respected by all sides, to have uh, some kind of discussions and that might bring an end of this particular fight. Now, I want to emphasize that that does not mean that the living conditions or life for Yemenis will be that much better. But if you end the fighting... It allows, it might, it could allow for the emergence of new political forces. I think there's a long, long gap between ending the fighting and a vaguely reasonable regime in Yemen. But at least I think you have some prospect, a better prospect of ending the fighting at this point. And is the solution going to mean that Yemen is split apart as it was until 1990 and Ali Abdullah Saleh unified the two halves of that country? Is that going to be the, the way it gets sorted out? No, I think at this point, my suspicion is that there will be efforts to keep Yemen as a single country, as a single state. The separatists are not as strong as they want to be or as they claim to be, and they cannot really have a separate state unless they really get Emirati support. 
And even with Emirati support, they can't guarantee that they will be able to control it. A separate state, you have very significant differences within the former southern state, i.e. you have different groups. You have both separatists and non-separatists, and you also have the groups that have no wish to be allied with other groups, so you would not end up with a single state in the south. You would end up with a minimum of two states in the south which would make very little uh, sense internationally. But I think the, it's really, I suspect that maybe this is a better opportunity now with the Emiratis and Saudis uh, supporting this, co this real conglomerate of eight mostly warlords to re-establish some kind of, of state which could be more of a federal state, which makes a lot of sense and not not end up with two. I think ending up with two states would be an extremely temporary solution because the South would then split into multiple, uh, at least two, two other states, if not more. Well, Helen, as you say, uh, steps up that staircase. Um, and let us hope for the sake of the uh, Yemeni people that the steps continue and that peace comes much sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think that uh, certainly, you know, I mean, the other thing what Yemenis really need is restoring restoring minimally acceptable living conditions. And that means a very massive inv involvement in development and in financing and in supporting an, an economy which, you know, gets away from basically what is now a war economy. And that would require a lot of internal changes and a lot of internal policy changes, as well as the type of external support, which I suspect is not very likely to be coming that way. Well, let us hope that it does. Helen, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome and uh, hoping that um, things get better. Indeed, indeed. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Helen Lackner, author of Yemen in Crisis, The Road to War. It's a seminal and very readable study of the war and what lies behind it. It's published by Verso, and a version with new material will be out soon. I recommend it highly. 15th of July, Helen's latest book, Yemen, Poverty and Crisis, is published by Routledge. Keep an eye out for it. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched the podcast, and our audience has grown tenfold to more than 5,000 listeners a month. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, or other audio platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, analysts like Helen. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources. Music.